Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, in the next few weeks, we're going to be revisiting a very popular series of Dr. Newfeld called Life Lessons from David, the Man Who Would Be King. So let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 14 and 15 as we join Dr. Newfeld now. This is the story of the rise of a man who would become the greatest king in Israel's history. It's not the story of his kingship, but the rise to kingship, about the amazing adventures surrounding the way in which God prepared this man to become king and the painful lessons he had to learn in order to be fully equipped to do that which God had called him to do. This is a story of great promise, even greater reversals, disappointments, personal failures and sins, and the playing out of a role that would change the destiny of Israel and pave the way for the coming of the Messiah. This is the story of a man who would be king, the story of David. David is, quite frankly, one of the greatest men who have ever lived. His name is mentioned thousands of times in the Bible. Indeed, his coming had been prophesied, and his legacy is that one of his descendants would rule the earth for all eternity. This is quite a story. David's importance in both the Old and the New Testament cannot be understated. The New Testament opens with the words, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Isn't it interesting that in recounting the genealogy of Jesus, the very first name that Matthew thinks to mention, and the very first name mentioned in the New Testament outside of Jesus, is the name David. And as the New Testament begins, we find an immediate interest in his roots. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and that's significant, because that's also the birthplace of David. Let's move forward to the book of Romans. As Paul begins his book, which outlines the heart of all of his teaching and theology, he begins in Romans 1 verse 3 with a declaration of the gospel. It is, says Paul, about the Son of God who was descended from David according to the flesh. Evidently, Paul thought that in order to establish the credentials of Jesus, who is destined to rule the nations, he must begin by firmly establishing that Jesus is a descendant of David. Furthermore, according to 2 Corinthians 6, verse 18, Paul applies the covenant God made with David directly to Jesus. Whatever was promised to David in the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus, he says. Jesus inherits David's promises. That's why the promises in Jesus are so precious. We began by noticing that the New Testament starts off mentioning David in the very first sentence. But did you know that the New Testament also ends with a mention of David? Revelation 22, the last chapter in our Bible, references David. Revelation 22, verse 16, we read, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. And so even though the New Testament begins 1,000 years after the life of David, David plays a principal role in setting the stage for the authority of its teachings. The New Testament fulfills what the Old Testament promised in the life of this amazing man. The Old Testament presents David as the anointed one. The Hebrew word for the anointed one is the word Mashiach or Messiah. In 2 Samuel 7, we're told that David's throne will form the basis of God's plan to rule the earth. David's throne will eventually expand as the throne which is destined to contain God's charter for the entire human race. Only the Messiah is worthy to sit on David's ancient throne. And so David holds a central place in the entire Old Testament. 
Abraham is the father of Israel and the father of all who have faith. Moses is the great lawgiver and the revealer of the righteous nature of God. But David holds the place of the great king, whose kingdom and governance is destined to pave the way for the Messiah and whose kingdom will rule and never end. David, a man who holds a central place in the Bible, whose importance is rivaled only by Abraham and Moses, and whose greatness is only surpassed by Jesus himself a man whose life made a difference and who left a legacy that will never be forgotten, one of the greatest men who have ever lived. Such is the nature of the man we're going to study for the next three weeks. But David's life not only paves the way for our salvation, there is so much of the legacy of the man's life that has inspired God's people for generations. His triumphs and failures, his faith and his sin are a matter of public record. His hymns of praise are central to the book of Psalms and constitute a portrayal of his intimate relationship with his God. His life inspires us, and he provides us with a life that many wish to emulate. But his failures also warn us that sin is not to be treated lightly. His sufferings remind us that God is still in control, and his battles, that life is warfare, and his love for God in all things provide us with courage that all we ever really need is to walk intimately with our God. This is a three-week series for all who want their lives to matter. If you're not content to live a purposeless life, to live and die without being involved in something greater than yourself, this series is for you. But if you want simply to live for the moment without a thought of that which ultimately matters, this series might just change your mind. If you want your life to count for something, if you want to be involved in something greater than yourself, listen up. This man's life is for everyone who wants to see the works of God accomplished in his or her own life. The life lessons to be learned from David are among the most important life lessons you might learn. His life will inspire you that the great adventure of living life in the presence of God is meaningful and brings about purpose. His life reminds us that whatever God has for us cannot fail and that God's assignment for our lives will be completed if only we trust in Him, even when things seem overwhelming and impossible. Do you believe God has a purpose for you? This series is for you. You know, if you go to Israel today and visit the ancient site of Tel Dan, you'll find that a sensational discovery has been made there recently. Archaeologists discovered a mid-9th century B.C. stele, that's a stone monument inscribed with letters written in the Aramaic language. There are 13 lines on this stele, and near the center of the text are the words, House of David. A wider context of what was found identified the then-king Ahaziah from the house or the dynasty of David. To all who doubt that the man really lived, that his descendants identified themselves by his name, and that the Bible gives us a true accounting of his life, these kinds of finds remind us we're dealing with real history. David, a real man, in real history, with a real life that might radically change our lives from aimlessness to a life lived with the purpose of realizing God's plan for us. What we learn from him is not a fairy tale account of someone who led an idyllic life, but a man whose life looks so much like many of our lives today, and yet was used by God in extraordinary ways. So let's start our study by examining the background to this amazing life. And as we do, we'll be studying 1 Samuel 14 and 15. We'll find that greatness is never the goal in life, but becoming comfortable with God's purposes is. David never set out to become a great man or the king of Israel. Indeed, as we're going to see, his calling was thrust upon him. He was born in a time when another king ruled in Israel, King Saul. 
And had that king not failed so miserably, David would have lived out his life much like his great-grandfather Boaz lived out his life, as a faithful and godly man, but not a man whose life would change the world and history. But in that we learn that our days are thrust upon us. None of us chooses the times in which we live or the circumstances we must face. You know, there's an old adage that states, life is what happens while you're making other plans. And that was certainly so with David. Since God sovereignly directs all things, David was to discover that the quiet life he might have lived in Bethlehem was to be interrupted by forces he could not control. God was calling him to things he had not planned for himself. And so for the rest of our study, we will concentrate on those forces and the response that David had to the times which were thrust on him. The book of 1 Samuel begins with the birth of a man named Samuel, who leads Israel out of the dark ages. Before Samuel's time, Israel as a nation had degenerated into a horrible cycle that seemed to deepen. If you did not know the plans of God, you might have thought Israel would soon cease to be a nation. It seemed destined to collapse and disappear. The cycle defined in the book of Judges is described in four stages. First, Israel turned from their God and rebelled against his law. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Then in stage two, God sent enemies against them, defeating Israel and subjecting them to servitude and humiliation. In stage three, in their misery, Israel cried out to God and repented of their law-breaking and begged God for deliverance. And then finally, in stage four, God would raise up a judge or a military leader who would deliver them from their enemies. And after that, the first stage in the cycle would begin all over again. Israel would rebel against their God. The book of Judges also shows us that each successive judge was just a little further removed from the Lord than the last. The ongoing cycle of rebellion, defeat, repentance, and deliverance, followed by rebellion, was in fact spiraling downhill. Things were gradually getting worse, so much so that human decency had disappeared, and Israel is now engaged in an awful civil war that almost wipes out one tribe, that of Benjamin. But in 1 Samuel, God raises up a different kind of judge, a man who, when a young boy, heard the voice of God and called Israel back to faithfulness to the law of God. His leadership would bring Israel back to her God and would teach them that faithfulness to God required not just an occasional obedience, but a wholehearted turning to God. And what he did would pave the way for David's role in history. Well, as we prepare to dig deep into the life of David, one of the greatest figures in the Bible, I think we're going to discover so many practical and timeless principles for our faith. So far, this brief background begins to set the stage for how David would rise to become king of Israel. But there's more to learn about the king who came before his time. So join Dr. Neufeld after the break as we begin to gain insight into the life of Saul. Christmas comes the same time every year, whether we're ready or not. We can't put the season on snooze until we're in a cheery mood. Christmas doesn't wait. It comes to find us where we are, as we are. This year, Christmas arrives to a troubled world. How can we celebrate Christmas in days of tension? It's in times such as these that Christmas is celebrated best. God sent his son as light and rescue in days of despair and darkness. The father didn't wait for the world to improve. He sent Jesus as help and hope for us all. In troubled times, we don't delay Christmas, we run to it. That's our prayer for you this season. On behalf of the whole team here at Back to the Bible Canada, Merry Christmas, Jesus has come, 
and who remains Emmanuel despite difficult days. Eventually, Samuel became an old man, and the elders of Israel were concerned that after his death, the same dreadful cycle that had so devastated the nation in the past would again repeat itself. As far as they were concerned, the only hope was a king, and so they demanded a king. And reluctantly, Samuel appointed and anointed Israel's first king, Saul. The end of 1 Samuel 14 is a kind of summary of Saul's life and kingship in Israel. I'm reading from verses 47 and 48. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them. And he did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. And so we find King Saul constantly beset by enemies on all sides. And in consequence, he is constantly recruiting expert fighters. His days are filled with war. The consequences of the earlier disobedience is now being painfully felt. When Israel came into the promised land, Moses had instructed them to destroy all their enemies. A study of the first chapter of the book of Judges sets the stage for what is to follow. Verse 21 says, The people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites. Verse 27 says, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shean. Verse 29 says, Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites. Verse 30 says, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron. Verse 31 says, Asher did not drive out, and then it mentions a host of people groups. And then in verse 33 it says, Naphtali did not drive out, and then it mentions more people groups. I hope you're getting the picture. Failure to do what God wants us to do brings about painful consequences much later on. And so King Saul was left to do that which Israel failed to do earlier. His was a kingship fraught with wars in his attempt to secure the promised land for the people of God. His was a great calling, a noble purpose, which he himself, just like David who followed him, had not chosen for himself. His times were thrust on him, and all of this was from the hand of God. And just like David who would follow him, he set himself to do what God called him to do. 1 Samuel 14.52 says, And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. His kingship was taken up in a constant search for strong fighters who might help him in the wars that he fought. But even though the fighting was intense, Saul was making headway. Those are the positive things that can be attributed to his life. He was defeating Israel's enemies. He was fulfilling God's purpose for his life. But as we will see, that was not enough. Underneath all of this, as we will see in the next chapter, 1 Samuel 15, is a description of a man who has a great weakness. He's unable to obey God fully. Indeed, in consequence of his weakness, we now remember King Saul as a man whose lasting legacy is not one of discovering his purposes in life, but as one of failure and moral defeat. His life reminds us that it's better to be a man or a woman of God than to be a great king. Do not seek greatness, the prophet Jeremiah told his servant Baruch, found in Jeremiah 45. The same can be said for us. Do not seek greatness. Seek rather obedience and contenting ourselves in whatever calling we have from God. Indeed, even as David and Saul's life reminds us that both of these men never set out to become great men, but God's designs were thrust on them. But what separates both of them and all of us is not the role we are called upon to fulfill, 
but rather our legacy and the meaning of our lives depends on how we respond to the role that God has sovereignly given us. Our drama begins as we come to 1 Samuel 15. Samuel, who advises King Saul in his task and who, as God's prophet, informs Saul what he is to do is speaking. So let's read 1 Samuel 15, 1-3. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over this people Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. You know, to the modern reader, this sounds horrific. It's beyond the scope of this study to investigate why a holy God would demand such a thing. But let's get the background to this command. The Amalekites were a nomadic people to the south and southeast of Israel. They lived in what is called the Negev and in the Sinai Desert. They were a desert people who moved about regularly. When Israel passed through that area on their journey out of Egypt, the Amalekites attacked them. You'll remember the event how Aaron and Hur held up Moses' hands and how Israel triumphed over them. But there is so much more to learn. The Amalekites were essentially plunderers. Their history was a history of merciless warfare to look for weakness in nations and attack weak and unsuspecting peoples, plunder their wealth, and then move on before they could be held accountable. This is how they survived at the expense of others. According to Moses, these people were to be put under what the Old Testament calls the ban. This means they were to be utterly destroyed. This means that God had given them time to repent, but they had not. Now their hour of judgment was at hand. In this sense, Israel was to serve as the agents of God's judgment. But because Israel was not to get the impression that God's judgment was the occasion for their own advantage, for their own plundering, Israel was to destroy the cattle and all their wealth along with the Amalekites. They were to take nothing from them. The so-called ban was not to be thought of as a handy little principle to enrich themselves. You know, at first, it seems that Saul is completely obedient to God. He puts together a very large army and comes to the city of Amalek. But then he notices that a people group called the Kenites are among them and makes provision that his attack on the Amalekites will not be a random, indiscriminate opportunity to kill anyone. He calls the Kenites to flee before the battle begins. He seems intent on carrying out the command with full obedience. He will do everything that God wants. But then, suddenly, we find a major deviation from God's command. I'm reading from verses 7 to 9. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. You know, those of us who know the history of King Saul will immediately recognize this as his second failure to obey God fully. In the first instance, his right to found a dynasty is taken from him. And now his kingdom is about to be removed because of the displeasure of God. Saul proves himself to be unworthy to fulfill God's purposes for his life. As Samuel will remind him, to obey is better than sacrifice. And with that, David is thrust upon the stage of history. Forces greater than himself will eventually bring him to the throne. 
He will eventually find that even before he was born, God had already destined him for his role. All he is to do is to be obedient to the call that God had for him. And as we study his life, we will find that his pattern is ours as well. Ours is not to imagine the great things that we might do for God, but to imagine what a life of humble submission to the purposes of God might look like. Jeremiah reminds us of this truth. In Jeremiah 10, verse 23, he says, I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself, that it is not in man who walks to direct his steps. Those things are given to us by God. As David was to learn, if he were to learn not to repeat the mistakes of his predecessor, he would have to learn to trust God amid triumphs and defeats, always believing that obedience is better than pursuing his own course of life. And as we study David's rise to kingship, it's my hope that we will learn the same principle. Do not seek great things. Rather, seek humbly to fulfill the plans of God in your life. Don't become someone great. Become someone obedient and love the Lord your God. John, thanks so much. This is a great beginning to a great series. One of the things you'd mentioned later on in the message is this line about learning to trust God amid triumphs and defeats. And I think trust is one of the most difficult things to learn in our spiritual journey. How do we go about doing that? Such a good question. I know that the book of Hebrews tells us that we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, and David's life is surely a witness to ours. I can't imagine the kind of failures and disappointments that David faced, and yet we find out that on numerous occasions he simply encouraged himself in the Lord his God. My hope is that as we go through this series and as listeners identify their own story with David's story, they're going to be finding reasons to confidently trust God. So I'm hoping that you hang in there, my listener, throughout this series and and, and begin to identify deeply your own life with what David faced and find reasons for confidence. As we study the life of David, we've already gotten a glimpse into how God was setting in motion all the circumstances that would lead to this young man's role as Israel's king. It is a powerful reminder for us that we don't get to choose our situation in life, but that God is fully in control of everything. And the more we grasp the sovereign hand of God, we recognize our role to submit to his will and seek to follow him just as David did. I hope that today's message has encouraged and blessed you. Be sure to join us tomorrow as Dr. Neufeld continues with another study from 1 Samuel 16 entitled, God Chooses Our Calling. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Back to the Bible Canada is committed to the message of hope found in Jesus Christ. Jesus came with the grace of forgiveness and the truth which transforms. And your support enables Back to the Bible Canada to sow this biblical truth in a spiritual famine. By your prayers and generosity, God's Word grants light and life to families under stress, seniors isolated in apartments, truckers alone on the road, unbelievers whose hearts and minds are in turmoil. Now the month of December marks year end for charitable donations. This year, the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada are looking to raise $517,000 to reach our year end budget. We hope you'll stand with us with your year end gifts. 
This goal has been set not as an achievement, but as preparation and promise. To give your gift, visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425.